Well, please turn your Bibles to Romans 8. I think I know everyone here, but um, not missing someone. My name is Robert. I'm a member here. Uh, currently, I teach at, uh, as a middle school teacher at Providence Classical School, but before that, I was intern. I'm doing what Austin is doing now, and back in my intern days, I did a little mini-series on Romans 8. The last installment was August 9th of 2020, and at long last, uh, we are at the end of our journey through Romans 8. So, we'll, beginning, we'll be beginning in verse 31. We'll go through the end of the chapter. This is God's word for you. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for his all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that. Who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray together, ask his blessing. Our Father and our God, we do thank you for your word. Your word is uh, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Lord, we need light because we live in a world that is covered in, in darkness. Father, each of us here uh, brings a heart that has dark corners in it. Some of us uh, know a little of that Darkness remaining sin in us, and some of us uh, may become well aware of it. But all the same, Lord, we all need your light. And so we pray right now, Lord, that you would lighten our eyes, that we might see your word for what it is. Not what we want it to be, not what we would prefer it to say, but what it says. And we ask that knowing that your word uh, is at the core good news for us, your people. So bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you think makes for a good question? What do you think is the difference between a good question and a bad question? Back in my seminary days, whenever we were coming to that time of the year where we're beginning a new semester, uh, without fail on social media, someone from seminary or the classmate or oftentimes a professor would post this uh, flowchart on social media. At least one person knows it. And the title of the flowchart was, Should I Raise My Hand in Class 
to ask my question and, you know, a flowchart, it asks all these questions. Is it this type of a question or is that? Is it a clarification question or is it asking for more information? Uh, is it a long question or is it a short question? You got all these arrows and they all point to this stop sign that says, do not ask your question. Right? And, of course, the reason is, we heard it this morning, seminary students can't read, they can't write. I'm just kidding. So you were paying attention in the morning service. No, actually, um, and I know the saying this is the chief of seminary students. Uh, seminary students are notorious for devising opinions and feeling this great need to share those opinions with their class. But they know that if they share their opinion, they're going to come across as lecturing, and so they don't want to do that. And so they take their opinion, and they staple on a questionnaire phrase like, well, professor, wouldn't you say that? And then they make their statement, or isn't it true that? And they make their statement. And they find a, a clever way to state their opinion by asking it as a question. And it, you know, if there, some people say there's no such thing as a bad question, but if there is such a thing as a bad question, it must be that bad questions don't actually seek any information. They're not questions at all. They're fake questions. So if there is such a thing as a bad question, it's that. Bad questions aren't really looking for truth, aren't looking for answers. Good questions often do seek information. A, a person that asks uh, a good question has this keen ability to take a, a body of knowledge, a, 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 a field of facts that they've learned, and they analyze that system of facts, and they they determine, okay, what gaps are there and what I know, and they ask questions seeking to fill those gaps. I think, though, and maybe think of a really good question you've been asked, the best questions may not seek information either. Jesus was really good at this, asking questions where he wasn't really seeking information. Think about his, uh, his experience with a rich young ruler. Maybe you know that story. And uh, A young man comes to him, uh, kneels at his feet, says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a question I'd love to be asked more. But Jesus doesn't give him an answer. He asks him a question. Why do you call me good? Now, Jesus knew that man's heart. He did not literally need to know why he was being called good. Jesus was asking a question to encourage this rich young ruler to change his, perfect, uh, his perspective on what actually is goodness. Why do I say Jesus is good? What, what is goodness? Jesus wants him to, to see goodness in that way. A good question, or a really good question, has a way of challenging the listener to, to change their perspective and see truth in a new light. See truth in a way that they maybe hadn't seen it up to now. Um, this question, unlike most passages in Scripture, is littered with not statements, but questions. And uh, it comes at the end of it. It's really right in the middle of uh, the book of Romans. And just for some perspective, Romans is kind of the closest thing to a theological resume. Paul uh, doesn't know the Romans, but he's writing to them because he wants to partner with them in ministry. So he writes them this, this letter, which in part, large part, is seeking to explain what is my gospel, the gospel that Paul is teaching. What is that gospel? And at the end of chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, he's kind of zooming out really far, a 10,000-foot view. And he kind of gives, really, it's a great summary, beginning to end of the gospel. Those whom he, God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Skipping down, those whom he predestined, he also called, those he called... He also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So just a few short words, from foreknew to glorified, everything in between, that's the gospel. 
Short and sweet. Okay, and then in verse 31, he asks a question. What then shall we say to these things? And it's not the first time he's asked that question. He likes to ask this question when he's made an argument. And he's saying, okay, what is the import of what I have said? Everything I've said about salvation and all God does for it. What is the actual import for our lives? And he's going to tell us through questions and and otherwise. And so I want to look at this text under three headings. It's a little bit of a different outline, but hang with me. Um, First, I want to look at six rhetorical questions. Verses 31 to 35, and this will be a lengthier point since it covers like half of the text. Then I want to look at one shocking quotation. And third, finally, we'll see two emphatic declaratives. So questions, a quotation, and declaratives. And you think, Robert, that's a little too grammary, language artsy for me. Well, that is what I traffic in for a living, so bear with me. Okay, six rhetorical questions. How does Paul use questions to drive home his point? Okay, they're rhetorical questions. Paul doesn't need the Romans to, like, tell him stuff he doesn't know. When he asks, who is to condemn, he's not wondering, I I know there's someone that will condemn me, but I can't think of it. Who is it again? No. No, he's using questions to drive home truth. And the point he's making in really all these questions is, the believer's security is theologically guaranteed. The believer's believer's security is theologically guaranteed. And Paul, I think, highlights three types of security that all Christians enjoy, those who are in Christ. What type of security do we have? And with each security, uh, there's like a theological undergirding, theological underpinning to that security. The first is that the believer enjoys security and blessing. Security and blessing. Look at these two first questions. He asks, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's the first question he asks. Now, if you're reading the ESV and you have a copy of it in front of you, you can look at a footnote and it says that an altar reading is simply, if God is for us, who is against us? Literally, if God is for us, who is against us? Who is it? Tell me. And on the one hand, you hear that and you think, well, there's a lot of things that are against us, right? I mean... Paul is going to list them in a few verses. We, we have tribulation against us and distress. Persecution. We have persecutors against us. Paul had persecutors. He'd been facing that his whole life. Paul had lots of enemies, but he asks, who is against us? Now, what's he mean by that? Now, a lot of people look around at all these problems, the ones that Paul mentions, and they say, well, if there is a God who's all-powerful and all-knowing, why all this suffering we go through? And the philosophical word for that is the problem of evil. And a lot of thinkers think that's a problem for Christianity, this problem of evil, that there is purported to be an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God, and yet we suffer. Why is that? Well, Paul takes the problem of evil and kind of turns it on its head and said, no, actually, because we know that there is a God of heaven and earth, and this God does have all power, And he's all good, and he loves us, and he's for us. Because those things are true, therefore, nothing is against us. Paul's just putting Romans 8, 28 in another way. He says, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And he makes the same point with another question in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for his all, 
how will he not also with them graciously give us all things? And obviously, you know, it's not as simple as, well, I want a Maserati, and so, no. Now, what's Paul saying? God will give us everything we need that furthers our eventual salvation, and beyond that, our glorification. And so we can know that we have true security, total security and blessing from the Lord. That's the security Paul is saying we have. Okay, how do we know this to be so, right? Well, Paul gives us his theological grounding. It is because he, God, did not spare his own son, but gave him up for his all. And as I was reading up on this passage, multiple commentators agreed that Paul is alluding to the story of Abraham in Genesis 22. Now, Abraham had waited a long time to be given a son, which the Lord had promised him. And finally, he received him in Isaac. Then the Lord said, uh, I want you to take your son, your only son, offer him up as a sacrifice. And Abraham was willing to do it. And right at the last moment, the angel of the Lord stopped him and said, Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. See, Abraham could make claims that he feared God. And he could perform some acts of obedience indicating he feared God. But it wasn't until he was really willing to give up something that cost him, his son. It was only then that, he, that, that God knew, and Abraham, I suppose, knew too, that he did fear God. And what's the proof that God is for us? What is the proof that God, not just in the future, will graciously give all things, but maybe even right now, the things in your life, God has given you those things for your glorification. It's that he gave us his son. Perfect, eternal son of God, who from eternity past had been in the loving embrace of his father. The father gave him up, was willing to put him to death, to to endure the wrath that we deserved. And that's how we know, that's the guarantee. It's not just evidence, but it's proof. That God loves us and is and will graciously give us all things. So we have security and blessing. Second type of security we have is security against condemnation. Paul's going to ask two more questions to drive home the point. He says, first, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And he asks, who is to condemn? And again, Paul knows that being a Christian doesn't exempt you from criticism and condemnation. And oftentimes, biting condemnation, criticism. He went through that himself, right? His own people whom he loved, the Jews, turned against him. His point, though, is if we are in Christ, there is no condemnation, no criticism that can be leveled against you, that can really stick, that that can have staying power in the sight of God. Sometimes maybe this doesn't line up in our experience. Maybe you yourself has been criticized. Maybe you've been, uh, had False accusations leveled against you. Maybe those accusations had just a little bit of truth sprinkled in, and so you brought those accusations to a friend, and, and they heard the accusation, they heard the charges, and they assured you. They said, no, you're good. That person's lying about you. That's not so. That's not who you are. But does that make the condemnation just go away? Well, I hope so, but not always. Easier, easier said than done. We, any criticism leveled against us has a way, and Satan has a way, of kind of taking that knife and driving in just a little bit further. And of course, the real question is, does God agree? Does God agree with these things being said against me? Well, no. How do we know that? Verse 34, Paul gives a theological guarantee. 
beautiful. It is God who justifies. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 33, gives us a great definition of that word, justification. You probably don't hear it outside of Sunday school and sermons, so good review. What is justification? Justification, the catechism says, is an act, completed act, of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, credited to us, and received by faith alone. Did you catch that? We're righteous in his sight. And there's only one perspective, one viewpoint that really matters, and that's God's. And from his perspective, we are righteous. And God knows we're sinners. Knows it better than we do, but because Jesus was put to death, received the penalty that we deserved, God sees us as righteous, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. No condemnation can stick. We're secure against condemnation. And then the third type of security we have is security against separation. We're secure against separation from the love of God. Paul rattles off a list of potential separators. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. You know, if I were making my own list of things I fear will separate me, I don't know if I would list lack of food. I don't know if I would list, you know, not have enough money to, to have clothing because that's not something I've been through, but Paul did. You know, Paul is telling his own life. If you actually, you know, compare this list with 2 Corinthians 11, there's a lot of overlap because Paul is listing out all the things he went through and all the trials he endured. And he could say, I, I've come out on the other end and I am not separated from the love of Christ And to a certain degree, maybe you haven't been through all of these things, but we too go through trials, whether they're financial or medical, psychological, relational. We go through trials, and the fear is, will I end up being alone? Whether it's a sickness or poverty or strife in your home, strife at work, strife with a friend, you wonder, will I end up alone? Will I be cut off? From God's love. Now Paul says we're secure from that. It'll never happen. No way can we be separated. But how do we know? The theological guarantees already said it. Verse 34. Christ is the one who died. That's proof enough. Jesus was cut off. Not you. God's not going to level a, a penalty a second time. If Jesus was cut off from his love. He was. I mean, he continued to be the perfect son of God, but in his human nature, he did endure uh, the penalty of separation from the love of God for a, a brief time. And if he went through that, you won't. But actually, Paul goes further than that. He says more than Christ dying, which should, you'd think would be enough, but he says there's more than that. He says Christ is the one who is raised. And he's at the right hand of God. And then he ends at this. Christ indeed is interceding for us. You know, New Testament says multiple times that Christ is raised at the right hand of God. So we know where Christ is, but we don't hear as much about what is Christ actually doing. You know, he's been raised for 2,000 years. And he's experienced those 2,000 years, presumably as a human being like us does, right? Time goes by. What is he doing with that time? Well, as far as we know, he's praying. He's praying for us. He's praying for you. And in spite of all the things you're going through that you will endure, he told Peter, Peter, Uh, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith will not fail. How do we know? 
We won't be separated from God's love because his son prays for us. And the nice thing about Jesus' prayers is they can't not be answered. Not just they will be answered, but it's impossible that they wouldn't be answered because he's been given all authority. Uh, Robert Murray McShane, Scottish 19th century pastor, didn't live long but left a big impact on the kingdom of God. He said this, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a thousand, a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. And you know, I don't know if you told yourself, man, if I could just see Jesus, like if I could just like see him and even just for five minutes hear him say a word or two to me, that would, that would really get me through, right? Um, disciples had that. They had that for three years. And Jesus said, it's better for you that I go away. And he was right because the disciples were, you know, kind of knuckleheads a little bit when they were with Jesus. And he goes away and they're preaching phenomenal sermons and performing miracles and standing up to the Romans and the Jews. And what happened? Jesus went away and he gave them his spirit. He, 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 from his position of authority, he was able to strengthen them in tremendous ways. That's why it's better off that Jesus be away bodily for a time. Okay, so Paul has made a case through these questions that, that we have complete security. It's guaranteed. Uh, it can't not be that we are completely secure. That's how secure we are. And now he's going to turn. This is our second point. He turns, he gives a quotation from the Old Testament. And if you were to just cover up and maybe at first three you were to guess, okay, where will Paul go in the, New Testament, uh, the Old Testament to drive this point home, he'd, I don't know, maybe you'd guess Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Maybe you'd guess Psalm uh, 121, you know, the Lord is your keeper, he will keep you from all evil. And we get Psalm 44. And uh, Michael asked, read the whole thing? And I said, yeah, because I, I wanted you to hear Psalm 44 and all its gut-wrenchingness, because it's a gut-wrenching psalm, isn't it? And it, the context, we don't know when it was written. You know, sometimes the Psalms give us a little explanation of where they came from. We don't get that in Psalm 44, but clearly Israel just got beat up, demolished by an enemy. And it's so bad that the psalmist says, God, you, God, you have made us a laughingstock. And uh, normally when Israel lost in battle, the answer was simple. Israel had been unfaithful and hence they were losing. But that's not what's happening here. Psalmist, he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so he's not kind of puffing himself up, but he's speaking truth. He says, All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Yet for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Okay, what's Paul doing with this quote? What's he saying? Well, he's making the point that our theology guarantees our security. But our experience on the surface can appear to, to contradict that. Our experience can appear to contradict the security that our theology gives us. And that's why the psalmist is perplexed. It's, it's, you know, it's, it'd be one thing if you're suffering and you realize, I have done something wrong that maybe led to this. You know, that, we can make sense of that. Okay, I, I'm strained, I'm sinning, God is 
causing me to suffer, so he'll get my attention, and, and, and it's that simple. But what do you do when you, you, I mean, obviously we're not perfect, but Christians can be genuinely faithful. They can obey. You, as a Christian, can obey. What do you do when you're seeking to be obedient as best you can, and you still suffer? How do you make sense of that? And in that moment, it probably doesn't feel like God is for you. It feels, and the psalmist says, it feels like God is rejecting you. The psalmist uses that word twice, I think, maybe more, reject. God, you have rejected us. Do not reject us forever. That's what our experience appears to tell us, that God has rejected us. And in those moments when, you know, your life really does get chaotic, I mean, there's always, there's always something hard in your life, but I'm telling you, when it really gets really dark, really dark, you have two options, always. And this is true all the time. You can be ruled by truth, or you can be ruled by experience, right? And every single choice you make, it's either dictated by what is true and what God has said and what God has committed, or your choice is probably dictated by something in your past that has conditioned you, in some sense, to do what you're doing. So you're either ruled by truth or you're ruled by experience, And I think one of the reasons Paul is driving home our security the way he is, not just his statements. He he could just tell us, God is for you, nothing is against you. No one can condemn you. But the reason Paul presents these truths as, as questions is he wants you to think it through. And he wants you to do the math and to take your suffering and to take your experience and hold them up to the light of the gospel and see what comes out. And every single time, if you do the math, Your security in Christ always comes out on top. Be it sickness, be it loneliness, be it depression, finances, broken relationship. These things are heavy. We're not saying you deny that. We're not saying you lie to yourself about how hard your life is. But we are saying that the only way to to enjoy and to even be equipped to be a, a fruitful Christian is to take your experience and compare it to what you know is true from the gospel. Think through your pain. Think theologically through your pain. So, Paul's given us six questions. Driving home our security. One surprising quotation which acknowledges that our experiences can suggest otherwise. And he closes kind of bringing the two ideas together with two emphatic declaratives, two emphatic declaratives, verses 37 to 39. Okay, now notice what Paul makes of this suffering that believers at times go through. He says that it is in these things. These things being the experience of being killed all the day long for the sake of the Lord. In those things you go through, not in spite of them, but in those things, we, you, are more than conquerors. Even as the people of God are brutalized and they're treated like animals in a slaughterhouse. And, you know, Romans was written probably during the reign of Nero. So this idea would hit close to home. Even in that excruciating suffering, seemingly uh, for the sake of the gospel and seemingly being interpreted by the world as a sign of God's rejection, even in that kind of suffering, Christians are not just winning but, but kicking their suffering in the teeth. That's kind of the word. Not just winning, but winning in a crushing victory. Think like, uh, well, I'm a football fan. You know, typically in a football game, you know, winning team tries to, if you score 40 points, you're doing pretty well. The the biggest, 
margin of victory for a football team was, I think, 222 to nothing. Or That's the kind of victory we have, even in our suffering. Crushing defeat. And you think, okay, but how, right? How does my getting beaten up by the world, the flesh, and the devil equate to me being victorious? Well, we look at who the victory is through. It's not through us. It's not through our faith, necessarily. It's not through the quality of our life. It's through him who loved us. It's through Jesus. How did Jesus get his victory? You know, did he summon his angels or even just rally the troops of Israel and kick out the Romans and restore the kingdom? Is that how Jesus won? No. He subjected himself to And literally he was the sacrificial lamb. He was the great lamb who was slaughtered for us. That's how Jesus won. And that's how you win too. If you are in Christ. And if in your suffering, in in the worst of your suffering, if there is, you know, even just a modicum of faith, there is the tiniest bit of faith that still clings to Jesus. Even your faith is no better than a faintly burning wick campfire it's been put out the next morning there's a bit of smoke rising up if that is all the faith you got in the worst of your suffering you are winning in a crushing defeat because it's not about your faith and it's not about stirring up faith to kind of get me through it it's you know jesus does not need our heroism he allows us to persevere gives us the faith to endure even when we can't see the next step and so we have victory In Christ, Jesus gives us the faith to keep us going. And so if even the worst suffering imaginable is a means to victory, then what's left? What can can take us down? Nothing. Paul rattles off another long list of candidates. Death? Death is strong. Death is basically undefeated against the human race, except for Jesus. But otherwise, death is undefeated, but can't separate us. What about life? You know, whatever you're fearing, it falls under that purview of life. Life is hard, right? Paul knew that. Jesus went through all that life has to to throw at us. And he endured victorious, so we don't fear life. Angels and rulers. This is probably demonic forces, probably. Maybe human governments at least, but, but anyway, it's a hostile authority. Not a concern. Things present and things to come. That seems to cover our bases. There's a good chance whatever you fear, it's either something in the present or it's in the future. We tend not to fear the past so much. The past can be difficult, but it tends not to be something we fear per se. Um, powers. Lots of powers out there, but God's far and away the, the strongest and he's for us. So powers we don't fear. Height and depth. There are no unknown, hidden rivals to God that will only emerge later. God knows all things, and he's above all things. We do not fear what's above us or what's beneath us. And because we're, we're fearful beings, we tend to generate fears ad infinitum. Paul covers his basis with, okay, there, there's, there's not anything else in all creation that can separate us from the love of God. Now, if you're like me, you say, well, what about this guy, right? Can I, by my own sin, my own stupidity, my own proneness to wander, can I, by my own tendency to unfaithfulness, can I separate myself from the love of God? And I think there's two answers 
we should give to that question. And one is, well, you do need to persevere. Because Jesus said, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And while we don't hold, and the Bible does not teach that we, we, we kind of do the last 1%, you know, God does 99% of our salvation, and we do that last 1%, we, we just have to have enough faith to kind of hold on to him. And, or, and we're not saved by persevering. That's not kind of one of the factors at work. So we're not saved by persevering in the faith, but it's also true that no one is saved who doesn't persevere. doesn't mean we don't stray and return, but, but the, the, the faith of a believer cannot be utterly extinguished. So we do need to endure. But on the other hand, the fear that you buy your own sin and your own tendency to wander could separate you from the love of Christ. If, if you fear that, it implies you have a a view of your sin that's significant. You, you see your sin as a, a big problem, and that's good. Um, is your sin greater than death? Does your sin fall outside the parameters of things present or things to come? When Paul spoke of anything else in all creation, that broad, sweeping characterization, was your sin the one exception? Friends, an assurance that does not account For our own sin, that's no assurance at all. And God would have us be assured in his grace. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So we we don't have confidence that that we're going to make it ourselves, but we have confidence that the Spirit who gave us a new heart and gave us faith to see and receive and rest upon Jesus Christ, the Spirit will help us to continue in that faith. So we have nothing to fear. There's no experience we can go through that will shake us from our secure foundation in Christ. I want to close by camping out in these, these little three, three words at the beginning of verse 38. I am sure. And Paul gets a, uh, this idea of assurance of salvation that not just are we saved, but we can know that we're saved. Not just that we, we know Jesus, but we can know that we know Jesus. And for some saints, assurance comes quite easily. Maybe it comes before you even had a conversion experience. You, from as far as you can remember, you were taught, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know. And you believe it. And you find it easy to believe that. But maybe assurance for you is hard to come by and you struggle with doubt and you are burdened by your own sin and your own lack of faith and assurance is harder to come by. And uh, whether you're in that first category or that second category, I would say none of us has perfect assurance. None of us has, is totally free from any doubt of any kind. And we can all grow in assurance. We can all grow in assurance. So how do we do that? Well, let's think about Paul. How did Paul get his assurance? How was Paul sure? Um, you might think, well, Paul had a leg up because Jesus appeared to him and revealed himself to him. And Paul could see Jesus. And that's how he got assurance, right? But tell you what, you know, right after Paul's converted, I was reading, been reading through Acts, and as soon as he's converted, he, he goes on the road, and he starts to, to preach Christ, preach he's the son of God, but he doesn't at first tell his story. Um, the writer Luke tells words, uses words like, Paul would prove that Jesus is the Christ. Paul would dispute, he would discuss, and in that way, preach. Paul would reason from the scriptures, and I think that's the key. 
What is the key, the, the key to growing in assurance? It is knowing and reflecting on the Bible. Reflecting upon Scripture. You're always reflecting. Now, there's always some monologue, I, I would assume. I hope your brain's not, if your brain's ever totally empty, then. But typically, we're thinking thoughts. They're either thoughts about your experience or they're thoughts about the truth. Think about the truth. There's no assurance in your, in, in your experience. Some people have wonderful experiences. The Mormons do. But that kind of experience doesn't give you the assurance you want. Assurance comes from reflection on the scriptures. Okay, what does that look like? Reflection on the scripture. Reflection on the truth. How do, how do I do that? Scripture memory is a good thing. Take a passage of scripture, memorize it, repeat it. Um, Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who meditates on the law of the Lord. And Hebrew word for meditate is, is I think, literally muttering. It's just saying the scripture over and over and over to yourself until you're Thoughts of unbelief and fear, they just kind of get crowded out. So, scripture memory, do it. But you can also do what could be called sanctified self-talk. The psychologists are all about self-talk, but there's a sanctified way to do it too. And I'll let J.I. Packer show you how it's done. This is from this book, Knowing God, great book. would highly recommend it. Even if you just read the chapter on adoption, which is what this quote is from. But J.I. Packer shows us something about Sanctified self-talk, and this is what I'll end with. He asks, do I as a Christian understand myself? Do I know my own real identity? My own real destiny? And this is the key. I am a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day near. My savior is my brother. Every Christian is my brother too. Say it over and over to yourself, first thing in the morning, last thing at night, as you wait for the bus, any time when your mind is free. And ask that you may be enabled to live as one who knows it is all utterly and completely true. Friends, tell yourself those things over and over again and see if assurance doesn't come in God's good time. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that You've not chosen to save us and then not tell us about it, but you have shown us, Lord, the way that we can uh, enjoy our security, God. Because it's all in your word. It's all in the scriptures, Lord. One covenant of grace from beginning to end, Lord. Lord, help us to savor it, not just to know it, not just to believe it, but to chew on it, to, to mutter it to ourselves, to meditate on us. Lord, there's no better thoughts to think than, than your thoughts you've revealed to us. Help us to do that for your glory and our good too. In Jesus' name, amen.